All right, let's go ahead now and turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Today we're starting in verse 8. Over the past two weeks, you'll know that we jumped ahead in 1 Timothy chapter 3 in order to take some time to consider the biblical office of the deacon. Today we are going to continue examining the character qualities necessary to be a deacon, but before we even get there, let's recap what we've already learned so far. Two weeks ago, we jumped back into Acts chapter 6 as we considered the proto-deacons of the early church, the seven men who the apostles appointed to care for the needs of those who were Greek-speaking widows. Remember, those widows were somehow being overlooked in the distribution of food, and they were in a desperate situation. At that early stage, we saw that there were particular requirements necessary for those who would serve in this office. In that case, the only stipulations mentioned was that they must be, quote, men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. The most famous of those men was Stephen, who later became the very first martyr of the church. Last week, we considered the arguments both for and against female deacons, and I presented scriptural reasons why I believe that that office is limited to men. Over both of the previous weeks, we have considered that regardless of office, every single Christian is called to serve one another, and every single Christian should use their gifts for the benefit of the kingdom of God. Men, women, young, old, all are supposed to serve one another in whatever, uh, whatever way the Lord has gifted you to serve the body. Most importantly, we have seen that Jesus Christ himself is the ultimate deacon. Remember, the word deacon is most often just translated as serve or servant. And with that in mind, consider the way we hear Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For the Son of Man came not to serve, be served, rather, which means be deaconed, that word is deaconed, but instead to deacon, to serve, and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ gave himself. He humbly made himself low on our behalf. So every Christian, we are called to take up that same manner of life. We are to wash one another's feet, figuratively speaking. We are to be the last of all. We are to be the servant of all. So today, as we take this final week to examine the character qualities necessary of the deacon, I want to encourage you to remember that these are not just some kind of ideals that are set aside for super-Christians to pursue. These are qualities that every Christian should aspire to reflect. So as we walk together through this passage, hear the Lord's instruction, not only for those who we are to put into place as deacons, but also for your own life and your own walk with Him. Please follow along now in your own copy of the Scripture as I read aloud from 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 8. It reads, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let's once again ask the Lord to add his blessing to the preaching of the word. Father God, we are immensely grateful that you have given us your scripture 
your truth revealed through all time through those that you have proclaimed the good news. And God, we pray that today as we gather, we would, just as Mike said earlier, we would celebrate in what you have done to make this available in our own language that we might understand in our mind who you are. We praise you, God, for giving us these boundaries so that we might know how to operate as a church. And we ask, Father, that as we hear these things today, as we consider these character qualities, you would instill in us a conviction to live in this Christ-like way, whether we are deacons or we will ever be deacons or not, that you would give us a passion for obedience to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you were paying close attention to the text as I was reading, then you will have noticed that these verses do not ever tell you what a deacon must do. Rather, these verses are exclusively about what attributes a deacon must possess. It's not geared toward tasks, but towards types. It is not focused on skill, but on sanctification. It's not about what a deacon must do, it's about who a deacon is. If you are a member of the church, then you recently received a copy of our revised bylaws and constitutions that will be voted on November 10th at our business meeting. Included in that document is a section containing the role and responsibilities of deacons here at Gateway Church. And as we work our way through this text, I'm going to also put on the screen the stipulations for the office of deacon as they are explained in our bylaws so you can see exactly from where these bylaws were derived. So, as we move through these verses, let's consider nine qualities required for a deacon. Or if you prefer... Nine marks of a biblical deacon. First, consider that the Bible says a deacon must be dignified. Most words do not translate well one-to-one from any language to any other language. And for that reason, it can sometimes be helpful to give the full range of translation so that you can get a deeper sense of how that word is being used and what its meaning might be. Sometimes this word that it says a deacon must be dignified, sometimes it is translated as noble, sometimes it is translated as respectable, sometimes it is presented to us as being worthy of respect, sometimes it is translated as being of good character. Now this is clearly not speaking to the natural dignity that all humans share. It's not to say that some people are better in terms of their humanity than others. Nor is it speaking of nobility that comes being born with a specific bloodline. Rather, it is speaking of those people who have earned the respect of those around them by living in such a way that garners respect. People who carry themselves honorably and with high conviction. Words are not meaningless, but words can be said by anybody. You can say anything to anyone at any time. The people that we are to set aside for the office of deacons are not just to be people who say what they believe, but who live what they claim to believe. They put into practice what they have learned from the Scripture, and they do so to such a degree that everyone who knows them cannot help but acknowledge they are honorable in their conduct. Our bylaws describe it in this way, dignified, meaning This term normally refers to something that is honorable, respectable, esteemed, or worthy, and is closely related to respectable, which is given as a qualification for elders. Now, this is to say that elders and deacons are both required to carry themselves in this kind of manner. Serving as a deacon is not the training ground for being an elder, 
although it can be. It is not typically designed to be the testing or proving grounds for a higher office. It is a place to serve because you are already operating in a manner that is dignified. Both of these roles are to be filled with men who carry themselves with the highest character. And as we will see later, wives of deacons are also to be dignified. The text continues to describe the requirements of a deacon by listing three negatives not to be present in their lives. Some commentators believe that when he uses this word dignified, what he is then going to do is clarify his exact meaning by saying dignified means, at least in part, not these following three things. And what's interesting about these behaviors that he mentions is that they are prohibited character flaws that are easily notable in most people. These three disqualifiers all have in common that they are hard to keep hidden. However, all three have the potential to produce enormous discord and immense disgrace amongst the people of God if a person who acts in these ways is set in the role of deacon. Let's look at each of these three in turn. The second requirement of a deacon listed is that he must not be double-tongued. Our bylaws present it for us in this way. Those who are double-tongued say one thing to certain people, but then say something else to others, or say one thing, but mean another. They are two-faced and insincere. Their words cannot be trusted, so they lack credibility. A person who is double-tongued is a person who manipulates language in order to manipulate people. They twist the details of an event to make themselves look like the hero. They distort facts in their favor, and they relay stories with intentional inaccuracies in order to garner attention. They pit people against one another with gossip or with slander or with misinformation. They speak out of both sides of their mouth. They are therefore unreliable in ministry, and they are untrustworthy to speak with honesty, and they are unfit for service as a deacon. Deacons serve the church in a variety of ways, and those who serve in this office must be trustworthy to speak truth as it accords with reality. And in doing so, they are able to carry out the ministry of the church without compromising the unity or integrity of the body. Thirdly, we are also told that a deacon must not be addicted to much wine. Our bylaws are written in the following way to help explain what this means. Uh, A man is disqualified for the office of deacon if he is addicted to wine or other strong drink. Such a person lacks self-control and is undisciplined. The word addiction is actually a very modern word in English. It's only been around for about 400 years, and the usage of this word really only became really popular with the rise of the psychology movement, especially in the 60s and 70s. And the reason for that is the trend of psychology is to push the responsibility for misbehavior outside of the person and to another term or concept. For example, it is not the person who is misbehaving, they are being controlled by something outside of them that is their addiction. That's why they say that they are misbehaving not because of themselves, but because of their substances. This is why the King James Version uses a different word altogether. Addiction was not a word yet. There we find, quote, the deacon must not be given too much wine. They must not be given to it. The word used in Greek that is translated addiction or given to, from, it comes from the Greek word prosecco. And this word is bigger than the word addiction. It actually speaks much more than just about the way that somebody is controlled by it. It speaks about the way someone thinks about alcohol. 
It's the idea that wine has some kind of mastery over you. It's the idea that could be translated as not devoted to much wine or not mastered by much wine. Never does the Bible outrightly prohibit the consumption of alcohol. In fact, in this very book, here in 1 Timothy, Paul instructs Timothy to use wine medicinally to cure his stomach issues. And we'll come to that in chapter 5. Jesus himself turned water into wine. So, although it is my personal practice to abstain from alcohol, that is not a command that the Bible teaches must be over you. However, the Bible does say a great deal about not being controlled by wine or any other substance for that matter. Allow me to present just a couple of instances for you. Proverbs chapter 20 verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. We do not want fools to be deacons. We want those who are wise. Proverbs chapter 23, verses 31 through 35 says, Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. And to give the principle of the matter, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated, meaning I will not be controlled or I will not be mastered by anything. When we consider deacons, the goal is to install people into that office that have no addictions that would control their mind or their body or their emotions. That they would not be given over to something else that has mastered them or dominated them. And I would argue that this prohibition could rightly be broadened to include various other addictions that were not present when 1 Timothy was written. But they fall naturally into this category, such as drug addictions. Even though our nation is progressively decriminalizing and legalizing and even normalizing certain drug use, it is important that we in the church ensure that those who serve as deacons and all of us as Christians are not mastered by any substance. So I will simply say to those of you who are uh, consumers of alcohol, be cautious with your consumption, not to step over the line into sin. If you find yourself sinning in alcohol. You need to step away from it. And I will say there are some people who should never go near it again for the rest of their lives because there is no self-control that you will have when you are near a bar or when you are near a bottle. So I would say to you, if you fall into that category, abstain for the glory of God. But whatever you do, eat or drink, do so to the glory of God. The fourth requirement listed here to be a deacon is that they must not be greedy for dishonest gain. Our, our bylaws present this concept in the following manner. If a person is a lover of money, he is not qualified to be a deacon, especially since deacons often handle financial matters for the church. I've actually always really loved the way that the King James Version says certain things. Like, I just can't imagine Psalm 23 without thinking of it in the King James Version when I, where I first memorized it. And one of those phrases that I just love from the King James Version is found here where it says that they would not be greedy for filthy lucre. It's just, just, I love that. It's likely that little needs to be said regarding the dangers 
of having somebody who has a love of money in this role, and it's likely obvious why this is very important. You are probably very careful with who you allow to hold your wallet. Why? Because you want to ensure that your money is safeguarded. You want to make sure that you place yourself in a position of safety. You want to make sure that we are wise about all that we put into a position that has access to or use of church funds. So although deacons are not primarily responsible for the finance of the church, that would be the, the trustees, there will be occasions when they will be responsible for utilizing funds of the church in order to carry out their ministry. So for this reason, we are called to examine the lives of the men who are to serve in the position of deacon and ensure that they do not prize earthly treasure to such an extent that they would dishonor the Lord to gain it. This is not to say that deacons should be homeless monks or that they should be absolutely impoverished. No, there is great honor in working for your wages. There is a part of what God has designed us to do to go out, get a job, and earn your living. Those who do not work should not eat, it tells us in Thessalonians. And this is not to say that wealthy individuals cannot serve in the role of deacons. It is the love of money, not money itself, that is the root of all kinds of evil. I've known a lot of many well-off people who have much, who have earned much, who have worked hard and gained an estate for themselves. I have known many who are extremely generous and absolutely godly in their approach to finances. I have also known many people who are on the other end of the spectrum with many financial hardships who could easily be described as greedy for dishonest gain. This is not about what someone has, it's about someone's heart. Consider Judas, who was with Christ for three years in his ministry. Yet we are told that he was stealing all along from the money bag. His heart was corrupt, and his actions revealed that over time. But how do you discern if somebody loves money? A couple of tests. The first one, simple. Listen to how people speak. You talk about what you love. Does that person speak about nothing but their investments, about nothing but their 401k, does that person complain all the time about their pay or speak nonstop about how they deserve a raise? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Does their, do their words relay information about a love of money? Another simple test is to observe the priorities of their life. You chase the things that you love. Do they prize their income over their family or over their church responsibilities? Is their entire life about chasing money? If so, that person should not become a deacon. Rather, a deacon is one who has rightly prioritized wealth as a gift from God that we are able to use for his glory. The fifth requirement for deacons is that they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. One of the defining moments of my childhood occurred when I was in third grade. We had a substitute teacher for my physical education class that, that week, and uh, this person was used to teaching high schoolers, so the games that she brought to us to play were really designed more for people twice our size. And one of the games that we had consisted of two players and an inner tube. Here's the way the game was played. One child would grab onto one side of the inner tube, and the other child would grab onto the other side of the inner tube, and your job was to try to knock the other person off of the inner tube by any means necessary. You can't physically touch them, but you can slam them around as much as you want. Now, 
our grades were, we were in a small school, so it wasn't just third graders, and I was paired up with somebody who was not only two years older to me, but twice my size, and I was able to match up with him and look up over the other side of that inner tube and realize there's no possible way I am going to shake him loose. But I also committed in my heart, there was no way he was ever going to shake me loose. So what, what happened? Ryan Bilby dragged me all across the field. He flipped me around, and the, the game was called to a conclusion when finally he lifted me over his head and slammed me into a tree, but I would still not let go. And so the PE teacher blew the whistle and said, okay, 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 I think we all know who won, and Ryan let go, and I was still holding the two. And she said, Ryan won. And my heart was absolutely infuriated in that moment, but I would not let go. It's important that we understand what is being said here in the text, that the deacon is to have a death grip on the mystery of the faith. They are to hold firm. They are to hold fast in such a way that this truth is the defining reality of their life, and there is absolutely nothing that is going to shake them from it. Lately, my wife has been listening to Sherlock Holmes. Um, I think she actually finished the entirety. You, you listened to all of the Sherlock Holmes books recently. And uh, Sherlock Holmes is just one of the greatest mystery series in the history of the English language. And um, as she was listening through this catalog, she was hearing constantly about the way in which you can use information that is around you to deduce what is important or the necessary facts to come to a conclusion. When we use the word mystery in the English language, most of what you are thinking about is probably based on that kind of Sherlock Holmes-style mystery, something that you could discover through deductive logic. But that is never the way the Bible uses the word mystery. Rather, the word mystery in the Bible is meant to describe something that is indiscernible through human senses or reasoning. It is something that can only be discovered by divine revelation. It is something that is exclusively present in the mind of God and will only be discernible by the minds of human men if he chooses to reveal it to us. Let me show you one place where Paul uses this word twice that will help us to understand how it operates in his vocabulary. Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 27. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and, my and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship of God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In this passage, Paul describes two things as mysteries that were hidden, but now revealed by God to the saints. First, he says that the word of God being fully known, it was a mystery, but is now revealed. God has always been the same, but now he has expressed that to you. Then he says that Christ in you, the hope of glory, is a mystery. Both of these gospel truths are necessary for salvation, so a deacon must hold fast to the mystery of the gospel that was once concealed, but now revealed by God. Or as Paul puts it, 
the mystery of what he calls the faith. What is the faith? It is the belief required for all Christians, that which we must trust in in order to be saved. What is that? What is the gospel? What is the faith? The good news is this, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Now, if you have ever shared your testimony with another person, here is what they are probably hearing. They are probably hearing you say, I am now a better person than you are. I have now become more righteous and more holy than you are. I am now somehow superior to you. I now have a relationship with God because I am somehow more excellent than you are. That is probably what they are hearing. But that is not what you should be saying. What you should be saying is the exact opposite of that, that I am a wretched sinner saved by grace, that I was lost, I was blind, but now I am found and given vision by God himself, that though I was absolutely unworthy and unfit for heaven, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth to live like us except for one thing, without sin. He came to live perfectly in my place and in your place. And although it is the wages of sin that produces death, he, the sinless one, died for sinners like you and me. He died so that we might have life. He died so that he might pay our penalty. He died so that we might be made righteous. I am a sinner, but Christ died for me. And he rose on that third day, and he has given life to all who believe. So when we speak of the gospel, the faith, that which must be held fast to, it is the idea that Christ has redeemed us and that he lives for us and that he is our savior even today. That is the faith to which a deacon and to which all Christians must hold fast. It also includes that this must be done with a clear conscience. This means that a deacon is to walk the talk. It means that they are not to be hypocrites. It means that they are to live the claim that they believe. Consider how Paul uses this same word of clear conscience in Acts chapter 23, verse 1. He says, it says, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. What does that mean? It means before God, what I am doing, my actions are being done in such a way that I believe God approves of them. How is a deacon supposed to operate? Not with hidden sin, not with a lifestyle of disobedience, but in a way that God approves of their actions. This means that before God they walk in the light. They not only profess with their mouth, but believe in their heart, and their lives are marked by a radical commitment to Christian living. Our bylaws simply summarize this truth the following way. Paul also indicates that a deacon must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience the phrase mystery of the faith is simply one way Paul speaks of the gospel. That is to what they must hold firm. So according to 1 Timothy, we should be appointing deacons who have been overwhelmed by the love of God to the point that they daily grip with all of their might onto Christ. They hold fast to the truth that they have believed in the gospel. They don't live a double life, professing one thing and living another, but they walk in the light as he is in the light. The sixth mark of a deacon is that they must be blameless. Now, our bylaws express this in the following way. Paul writes that deacons must be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Let me remind you that blameless does not mean sinless. If only sinless people could serve as deacons, then Jesus would be the only eligible deacon candidate of all time. 
Also remember that Paul described himself before salvation as being blameless, yet he counted that as of no value of gaining Christ. So what is this word supposed to mean? How should we be looking for this in those who are called to serve? Simply put, blameless means that they must be above reproach, without scandal, pure in their conduct. It means that those who serve as a deacon must not live in such a way that would pollute the church with sin or drag the name of Christ through the mud. How are they to be tested? Let's be clear. There is no written examination. There is no gauntlet through much which they must run. Rather, what this means is that the congregation is to ensure that their life matches their testimony. The deacon candidate should be observed with a careful and attentive eye by both the elders and the congregation, and if that person displays a record of godly living, they should be permitted to serve. Seventh, we find that the demands for a deacon also stretch into their family life. Our bylaws present this in the following way. According to Paul, deacons' wives must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. A couple things right off the top. Does this indicate that a deacon must be married? No, it does not. Does it indicate that a deacon must have a wife who is a believer? No, it does not. Rather, it indicates that those who are married and whose wives are part of the church must ensure that their actions are not going to damage the kingdom. The four stipulations that are set on wives of deacons are as follows. Like their husbands, they must be dignified in their conduct. These other three requirements honestly fit nicely into what it means to be dignified. Paul elaborates and explains that deacons' must, wives must not be slanderers, meaning that they must not occupy themselves with gossip towards other people. They must not stir up trouble with their words. Rather, they are to be what? Sober-minded. This indicates that they are to think before speaking and be measured in their words. Their actions should not be a knee-jerk reaction, but thoughtfully carried out in a Christ-like manner. Similarly, deacons' wives are supposed to be faithful in all things. This primarily speaks into the way that we keep our word. What it means to be faithful is if you promise something, you actually do it. It means she is trustworthy. It means she does not fall short of her commitments. She does not promise and then not follow through. These are the sorts of wives that deacons are to have if they are married and their spouse is a professing believer and part of the church. The eighth mark of a deacon is that he must be the husband of one wife. As mentioned last week, this does not mean that he must be married. Rather, this is an indication that he must not be married to more than one woman, which was common practice in the first century in which Paul was writing in the book of 1 Timothy. <clears throat> it speaks then to the character of his marital fidelity. Here is how that's spelled out in our bylaws. The best interpretation of this difficult phrase is to understand it as referring to the faithfulness of a husband towards his wife. He must be a, quote, one-woman man. That is, there must be no other woman in his life to whom he relates in an intimate way, either emotionally or physically. Marriage is a picture of the gospel, according to Ephesians chapter 5, and to mar that picture of the gospel with the sin of adultery is to blur the testimony of Christ to the world. And for that reason, a deacon should be a man who is walking in integrity in this area, whether he is married or he is single. The ninth and last character quality mentioned in this chapter is that a deacon must manage his children and his household well. Here's how our bylaws uh, present this. A deacon must be the spiritual leader 
of his wife and children. Again, this does not mean that a deacon must be a father, nor does it mean that he must have control over his adult children who are no longer in his household. This is a specific reference to deacons who are fathers with children under their authority in their home. So what does this look like in the life of a father? By managing the household well, that would include many things. It means that the father instructs and shapes the life of his children so that they would know and fear the Lord. It means that he is faithful to communicate gospel truth to his family, both by his life example and by verbal communication. It means that he will provide for his family. It means that when necessary, he will correct his children. He loves his wife, and in loving her, he leads her through life. And he is not absent or aloof. He is not given to anger or abuse. He reflects his heavenly father as he guards and guides his family. He faithfully shepherds that little flock that God has given him with much diligence and therefore manages his household well. Now, you'll notice that after these nine character qualities that are listed... Paul includes that there are two unique kinds of blessings that are available to those who serve in the role of deacon. Verse 13 says, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now first notice that there is good standing to be gained. What does that mean? Well, first of all, This is what it does not mean. It does not indicate that God loves deacons more than he loves other Christians or that they have gained some kind of a higher likelihood of being placed in the front row of heaven or being more likely to access heaven altogether. Every single Christian is loved to the uttermost by the Father and there is nothing that could ever be done to increase or decrease that love. You cannot expand the infinite. The good standing that is spoken about here is about standing within the church. It provides a platform for the life of the deacon to be on display before the congregation. Why? Not to glorify the deacon, but to give glory to God himself. Let your good works be seen among all men that they might see them and give glory to your Father in heaven. And it allows those who are serving in the shadows to be seen more clearly and to be more of an encouragement to the body. And even greater, serving as a deacon provides a deeper confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This confidence is a reference to the boldness that a deacon has when carrying the gospel to others. I like how Philip Towner explains it in his commentary on this passage. He says, The word for assurance, or translated in the ESV as confidence, often occurs in connection with speaking activities, particularly proclamation. In other words, this is not saying, well, deacons have an assurance of salvation that other Christians do not have. No, all Christians should be able to have an assurance of salvation. If you want to speak about that, I would encourage you to read the book of 1 John, and then we could see how the scripture teaches all Christians should have a confidence and an assurance of their salvation. But it does speak to, rather, the proclamation that they have. There will be a boldness in them. The blessing is not just the boldness, but where it comes from. Why serve as a deacon? Well, it's not for financial gain, because certainly we don't give them money, and it's not for status or reputation. It is for the joyful promise that in serving the people of God, you will then yourself grow deeper in faith in the Son of God. 
This is the great hope of all believers of all time, that we might know our Savior more and more each day. And the promise for the deacon is that as they grow deeper, they will have greater confidence to communicate that gospel to others. So at this time, we've concluded our time considering deacons, and next week we're going to return back to chapter 1 of 1 Timothy and make our way forward where we left off. But I hope that as we've gone through these three weeks of considering what the Bible teaches about deacons, it has helped to clarify and give instruction to your understanding of how the church is to operate. If you have any thoughts or questions, I would love to speak further about this, but for now we are going to close our time of speaking of deacons and move back into 1 Timothy chapter 1. With that being said... Let's thank the Lord for what he has taught us through prayer. Father God, we thank you again that you have given so much wisdom in your word about how we, we are to operate in your church. And Lord, I, I thank you that even though almost every person in this room has broken the majority of those requirements that we see in the scripture, and even though all of us fall short of some of them, Lord, I thank you that you are a forgiving God who has brought sinners into your kingdom that you have saved wretches like us and made us part of your family. And God, I pray that you would continue to sanctify and heal and correct and rebuke us in such a way that it transforms us into the image of your Son so that all of us would meet the criteria mentioned here, that all of us would act in a dignified and godly way, that all of us would carry ourselves with honorable conduct. And God, I pray that all of us would do so for the sake of honoring the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.